Greetings and welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship for another Wednesday night study together, our book study in Supernatural. We're coming near the end. Uh, we've got about, um, we're, we're going to do the second half of chapter 15 tonight, and then we've got chapter 16, and we might you know, make break that into uh, one or two weeks. We'll have a conclusion. I think what I want to do when it's over um, is maybe have one night where we just do kind of a Q&A through the whole book. Anything that, you know, we've talked about so much over all the weeks. So I think we might do that when we finish the book before we start something new. And uh, I, I have a few announcements I'm going to make, some stuff that's coming up. But before I do, let's open up in prayer and we'll go from there. Father, we just take a moment to turn our hearts and our minds to you and to settle our, our souls before you for this day. And um, uh, faithful to lift one another before you. We, we pray especially for several who uh, have been in the hospital or are in the hospital right now and facing some difficult circumstances and pray for full healing and health and help and hope in the midst of those trials. And we pray you would be with each family and each individual, that there would be a a spirit of encouragement, a healing uh, um, movement from your spirit in each life, Lord. We, We just bless you. Father, I pray for this time that we open up this book tonight and seek to try to understand your word better. Pray that our, our minds, our hearts would be open, that we would be hearing from your spirit, that you would speak to us, that would be, we'd understand why these things make a difference in the kingdom, why, how we are to make a difference for you. And Father, we, I, I pray right now for the church. Lord, I ask that you would move in the church in such a way that we would com- that we would finish, that we would complete the great commission you've given us. Even as Daniel prayed for you to to uh, see uh, Israel released back from captivity at the end of the time of prophecy, Lord, I come before you saying and asking you that you would keep your word. And seeing the, the fullness of the gospel in this world. Move upon the church that we would complete the great commission that you've given us. Father, cause us to, to, to hunger, to thirst, to go forth. Move us by the light and the power of your spirit. by the fulfilling of your will that we would fulfill and keep the commission of taking the gospel to the ends of the ends of the earth may we remember the exhortation that you will never leave or leave us or forsake us you are with us and father we pray for those who right now are being persecuted because they've named the name of Jesus those who are experiencing untold deprivation, pain, separation. Lord, we, we, we lift them before you. We pray for them. We pray that the fruit of their faith in you would bring forth incredible fruitfulness. 
entire communities and societies and, and places in this world would be changed because of the lives that have given themselves for the gospel. Following the example of, of you, our Savior. Father, we pray for Jerusalem. We pray for Jerusalem to declare blessed is he, Jesus, Yeshua, King, Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord. For Jerusalem to declare, receive, accept her Messiah. We call on you for the fullness of that promise. We bless you and we pray these things this night in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right. So we are in um, the second half of uh, chapter 15. We're in 15b. Um, what I'm going to do. So, by the way, those that may be listening in and are, uh, you know, maybe checking in for the first time, wondering what we're doing. Uh, we're, we're going through a book called Supernatural. It's by uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, again, uh, I'll say this each week, but uh, there's pray for him and several in his ministry who are going through uh, uh, difficult times. Uh, Dr. Heiser's dealing with cancer. There are others who are very ill just for, the, for the, their health and, and healing and wholeness of those in that ministry. Uh, gr- so grateful for his work and his scholarship and a lot of, of uh, what I've learned, uh, there's, a, there's a lot that, um, that I teach and incorporated in my learning uh, that I've gotten from Dr. Heiser. This book's just one small example. And so the goal of the book is to help us to understand the scriptures, to understand better the, our Bibles. Um, and we are just a few, few weeks away from finishing up uh, the study. Um, we're going to finish up chapter 15 tonight. Uh, this is being a partaker of the divine nature, so uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll get into that. We'll fin- uh, do a little intro to kind of remind us what we talked about last week, and then get into our discussion for tonight, the second half, and then we're going to talk about why it matters, why it makes a difference. Do that at the at the end of each lesson, and uh, then, we'll, like I said earlier, we've got one more chapter after this. But next week, I'm doing something special, uh, something um, kind of a kind of a one-off. Um, very often this time of year, Christmas time, I hear, um, you know, I hear people object to saying, well, you know, isn't Christmas just a pagan holiday? Aren't we just doing something following after pagans? So I'm going to talk next week, is Christmas a pagan holiday? And my, I'm going to borrow a title from Michael Heiser, Dr. Heiser, and it's this, what you know may not be so. What you know may not be so. That's going to be kind of a borrowed title. I love that title when I heard it. And I promise you, we'll talk about some things um, uh, that um, you've probably not heard before. And, you know, the goal, again, is to equip us with accurate knowledge uh, um, in in walking forward in truth. So that's going to be next Wednesday. In two Wednesdays, the 22nd, can you believe we're that close to Christmas? This is kind of crazy. I'm thinking about it. Oh, my goodness. In two Wednesdays, on the 22nd, 14 days from now, um, we're having a concert here. And it's, it's going to be unlike any kind of a Christmas concert you've ever experienced before. Um, tell your friends, tell your families, tell your neighbors. Um, uh, it, 
bring them and and check it out. It's uh it's the it's going to be music that you know played in a way you don't know. Let me put it that way. Music that you know played in a way you've never heard before. Um uh I've I've heard a couple of little uh samples of it. I haven't um uh, gotten the full experience, but I'm looking forward to it. And we will be having a Christmas Eve service as well. Some have asked me about that. We will be having a Christmas Eve service 6:30. So um, that's coming up. Uh, I think I've hit all the things I wanted to announce. If I, ran, I forgot something, let me remind me. All right, let's jump into our chapter. Partakers of the divine nature. And so, Dr. Heiser starts off this chapter with this quote here. He says, "Do you know who you are?" I asked the question earlier, but it's time to raise it again. Yes. We are in the world, but not of it. That was what we spent chapter 14 talking about. Being in the world, yes, we're here, but we're not of it. There's something unique, distinct, and different about us. Do you realize that you are not a part of this world system? And uh, what does that mean? True. We have been saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. But that's just the beginning of understanding what God has been up to. You know, a lot of us as Christians, our understanding is, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've been saved, so I'm going to make it to heaven, and I'm just kind of hanging on until I get there. No, our being a believer, being a Christian, goes far more in-depth than that. Um, God's original intention in Eden was to merge his human family with his divine family, the heavenly sons of God who were here before creation. So uh, we, we've talked about that several times. We looked at Job. We're, we're, I'll mention it just a little bit uh, in a minute, just kind of reintroduce us to it. He didn't abandon that plan at the fall. Just because we were expelled from Eden doesn't mean that plan was abandoned. Quite, quite the opposite. Christian, you will be made divine like one of God's Elo, uh, Elohim children, like Jesus himself. We're actually going to look at some scriptures that talk about that tonight. Theologians refer to this idea by many labels. The most common is glorification. Having a glor- Anybody ever heard having a glorified body in the resurrection? That's what it's talking about. Having a divine body like Jesus's so, uh, post-resurrection. Peter referred to it as becoming partakers of the divine nature. And again, we'll look at these scriptures tonight. John put it in this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So in this chapter, we'll take a look at how the Bible conveys that message. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, and we, we introduced last week, who are the sons of God in the Hebrew Scriptures? When you, if you turn to the Hebrew Scriptures, almost every time you see sons of God, it doesn't refer to human beings. Sons of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. When I say the Hebrew Scriptures, I'm talking about what most of us call, call the Old Testament, right? From Genesis to, to Malachi. Um, and when you see the term sons of God, it refers to divine beings, to created divine beings, heavenly beings that are, if you will, God's heavenly family that he created, those whom he relates to in the heavens. Um, so uh, now what the scripture tells us is when, you know, we, we, we talk about it all the time. Hey, our, uh, when you come to Christ, you are part of a, the family of God. You are now a child of God. Well, that means you are a divine son of God. Um, we become a divine son of God, and we have the deposit of that now with the Spirit in us, and we'll have the fullness of that at resurrection. And again, well, if you've not heard these things before, we're going to look at the scriptures, we're going to look at the text. This is all coming out of scripture. So 
the first part of understanding that being a son of God was being a seed of Abraham. And that's what we looked at last week. That's what we really spent last week studying is what does it mean to be a seed of Abraham? All those who come to God in faith, all who come to God in faith are following the path that Abraham blazed. Paul talks about this in several places. Scripture talks about this in multiple places. It says what? It says, um, Abraham is the father of all who believe, the father of all who come into faith. And by the way, the only way, the only way anyone has ever been able to come to God is through faith. From the beginning to the end. It's always been by faith. That's why it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. It's quoted several times in the scriptures. All right. So, um, so here's kind of the timeline. So you had three rebellions. You had the garden. You had the, the flood. And then finally you had the Tower of Babel. After the Babel rebellion, God turned the world over to the sons of God. And we looked at those scriptures. Deuteronomy 32.8. He, he, he divorced himself from the world. And he placed the sons of God, the divine sons of God, as spiritual lead, rulers over the world. His intention was that they would lead him back to him. Number two. He knew he would start over with a new human family of his own. So Genesis 11, Tara Babel, he divorces himself, Genesis 12. He, he starts over with a new man. Who is that new person? Number, uh, number three, Abraham is called. When was he called? Immediately after the rebellion at Tara Babel. Immediately after God divorces himself from humanity, he calls Abraham and he starts over with a new family on earth. All right, number four, through Abraham and Sarah, God will make a new family and he will restore Eden. His goal is to restore us back to what he intended from the beginning. How many know that it doesn't matter how many times you try to try to thwart what God is going to do? He is going to bring his plan to pass. If we understood that, if we could get that one concept down, it would literally change how we lived our lives. Because all of us have experienced hard times, difficult things, and, and things that we don't understand going on in the world around us. But if we knew that no matter what we were facing, none of it thwarts God's plan. Ultimately, God will bring his plan about. And uh, ultimately, um, uh, we will be restored to Eden. And uh, if you can ask me more about that. We're not going to touch too much on that uh, tonight. But you asked me more about that in the Q&A at the end. Number five, though the nation of Israel failed as a nation to be the light to the nations, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, to reveal God to the nations. One of Israel did not fail. Jesus, Yeshua, salvation. That's what Yeshua means. Savior, salvation. Son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, son of God. God's covenant promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. All the nations of the earth are blessed through the seed of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That's what he told him. Now, see, this is my point. Catch this now. This is my point when I say no matter what we face, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter what's going on, God's plan is not thwarted. God told Abraham, I am going to bless the world through your seed. Abraham was a hundred years old. When Isaac was born, Abraham never saw the fulfillment of God's promise, yet God fulfilled that promise. 
Abraham only had to know that he had to trust God. And if he did, God would use him to accomplish the part he was to play in the plan. Even if he didn't see it, even if he didn't know it. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 11. All right, number seven. Thus, we come full circle. The punished nations at Babel are now blessed through Jesus. So we've come full circle. We have the nations who were divorced uh, from God who are now welcomed back, invited back to be part of the family through Jesus, who is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham full circle. All right, number eight. So let's really get the full picture of this. The land outside of Israel had been given over to the sons of God to rule the world. So the, the land outside of Israel didn't belong to God. What did belong to God? God's portion, Israel. It's over and over in the scriptures. But you are my portion, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 32. You know, the, the nations were given to the hosts, but you, Israel, are my portion. That was God's portion. So even the language of the scriptures indicates this separateness. Those outside of Israel are Gentiles from the Latin gens. That's where we get the word Gentiles, gens for nations. So Gentiles means those are the nations. So when the apostles, uh, in, in their writings, um, you, you see them make this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Jews who were what? Born into those who were meant to be God's family. Gentiles born outside of that with a message that says what? The story of Scripture after Christ, who is Jesus, a son of Abraham, came to redeem the nations. First, redeem the nation of Israel. And by redeeming Israel, guess what? The nations get to participate. How many remember the parable, or not the parable, but the story with the Gentile woman who comes to Jesus for a blessing? He says, well, you know, why should, I'm, I'm here to bless Israel. He says, yeah, but even, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And she was like, okay, that's a person of faith. You get blessed. So Jesus came to redeem Israel, but by redeeming Israel, Israel fulfills her promise to bless the nations. And we get to be uh, grafted in to that olive, to being, being torn, broken off of wild olive trees, grafted into the natural olive tree, Paul puts in Romans 11. All right. So as a cast off people under the control of pagan gods, we can now inherit the promise of Abraham. All who embrace the gospel, regardless of race, uh, regardless of place, become children of the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Yahweh. All right. So this was radical when the apostles were writing this. It's, it's why Paul, uh, when, when he mentions this on the steps of Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's why they, they want to kill him um, after 25 years, uh, three missionary journeys around the world. The apostles write about believers in family terms. And what do we see when they write about it? They see the language of adoption. So you could, wouldn't be adopted unless you were outside of the family to begin with. What's the point of adopting if you're already in the family? Okay? So the language of adoption, our opportunity to be adopted into the family of God. All right. So this is a quote from Dr. Heiser. The language of inheritance is crystal clear and deliberate. It tells us who we are. We are the new divine human family of God. 
That's who we are. The believer's destiny is to become what Adam and Eve originally were. Immortal, glorified imagers of God living in God's presence. Let me say that again. What were Adam and Eve? They were immortal, glorified imagers of God, reflecting the image of God, living in the presence of God. But even that doesn't fully express who we are. The most amazing part is how Jesus sees us. My goodness, if we could get this down, if we can understand how he sees us, and that's where we start. That was our review from last week. That's where we start for tonight. A family reunion. Anybody ever been to a family reunion? Hmm. Well, there is a family reunion that's coming that's unlike any family reunion you've ever been to. I promise you that. Um, So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the first two chapters of Hebrews. And this is quoting from Dr. Heiser. it's It's a dramatic picture of God's blended family, divine and human. For me... Uh, Dr. Heiser says it's one of the most stirring passages in the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to turn to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at some verses. We won't look at uh, every, verse, but every verse, but we're going to look at some verses in, that, in the very uh, beginning of that, of that book. So let's start here in Hebrews 1. It says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God has been speaking from the beginning of time, he has been revealing himself, been making himself known. And, and uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us this has been done many times. God's done it many ways. And he spoke uh, 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 to, to those before us by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is going to inherit the earth. So, do you all know what it means to inherit? It means it will be yours. It will belong to you. He is going to literally rule and inherit the entire earth. All of humanity, all who are on it, all the activity and action that's going to happen on it. He is the heir of all things. It has been appointed that that's going to happen. Now, that's the way it's been from the beginning. Why? Because everything that exists was created through Jesus. Jesus is the Word. And the way God created by it was the Word. So everything that exists was created through Him. He was the conduit through which everything was created, both in heaven and on earth. This is Colossians really brings that out. Now, this is this next verse here is one of the most powerful verses in the scripture talking about the deity of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we'll take that first. Then we'll look at the next phrase. So I want you to picture it this way. Anybody ever been outside on a sunny day? You've been outside on a sunny day. Okay. Anybody ever feel the rays of the sun hit you? You feel the energy of the sun hit you. Now, um, 
So you have the sun, and it has all this energy, and that energy travels, and it comes, and that, and that uh, because of all that energy, we can see everything around us because it's lighting everything up. Do we somehow make a distinction and say, well, that's the sun here, out over there, but all this light and these rays that are hitting us, that's not the sun. Hmm. So the radiance of the sun is the sun. Isn't it? This is what he's saying. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. If you picture God in his Godhead and all of his godness, the glory that radiates from him, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is that radiance. Jesus is that radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What he's saying is uh, if you want to know the nature of God, that's the nature of Jesus. Paul puts it in Colossians, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him in bodily form. The exact imprint of his nature. And it says this, if that's not enough for you. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the writer of Hebrews is giving Jesus here those uh, attributes which only God has. Who holds the universe by his word? Well, he just said Jesus does. But I thought God does. What's the answer? Yes. If you said yes, give yourself uh, 14 points. That's worth 14. All right. After making purifications for sins, who made purifications for sins? Jesus. Thank you. Uh, 21 points. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, uh, oh, let me just keep going. So he's making the distinction between the Father and the Son in that having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So something that Jesus did in redeeming, he has been, um, uh, uh, in redeeming humanity, he has become the inheritor of humanity. So, number one thing we want to see out from that scripture, no one is superior or higher than Jesus except the Father. It's much more superior, even the angels. They can't be. Why? Because he's just telling us he's God. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the radiance of his glory. No one is superior or higher than Jesus. All right. So, let's keep going. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. See, the point is, is what he's, the reason why he's comparing to the angels, because angels are what? They're divine beings. They're heavenly beings. They're considered greater beings than man. Um, and we'll see text that talks about that. Um, and so he's saying, and Jesus came as a man. So they would say, well, Jesus is less than them, right? No, he's above them, even in his humanity. Now, that's a key thing to remember. Even in his humanity, because of redeeming man, He becomes above what he was made lower than. Let's keep reading and we'll see that. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, let's take a second. 
because there's like two or three things we want to get out of these verses. The first thing is, let's look at that term firstborn, because I've heard people say, well, it says he's firstborn. That means Jesus was born, right? I mean, that means he was created, right? Well, firstborn can mean someone who's, you know, actually born, the firstborn in the family, right? That makes sense. That's how it's used. That's how we understand it. But how many know, also know that it's a title of preeminence in the Bible? Firstborn is also used to be the title, the firstborn is the title of preeminence. Now let's look at a few scriptures. Here's Jeremiah 31. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Okay, so let me ask a question. Does anyone know who Ephraim is? Ephraim is the name given to uh, the tribe of given to the tribe of Israel, but it's named, it's taken from one of the tribes of Israel. Now, does anybody know who in the birth order Ephraim is? Bingo, he's Joseph's younger son, so he's not even a son of Jacob. He's a grandson of Jacob, and he's the younger of the two of Joseph's sons. So right here, the scripture saying the grandson, who's the younger one, is considered the firstborn. Obviously, it's not talking about birth order. Obviously, it's not. It's meaning what? It's meaning preeminence. Hey, it's meaning preeminence. He has this place, um, Israel, and, and, it's, and he's given that name to Israel. Now, was Israel the first of all the nations? No. All right. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. This is in Psalm 89, verse 20, 21. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be uh, with him and my arm shall strengthen him. And jump down to verse 27. And I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, was David the first king born on earth? Was David even the first one born in his family? Was David even the first king of Israel? No, no, and no, If in case you didn't have the answers to that. None of the above. Yet, he's calling him the firstborn. Why? He is the one given preeminence, the one who inherits. See, what does the firstborn do? The firstborn inherits the right to rule. The firstborn inherits what belonged to the father. Jesus becomes the one who inherits what belongs to the father. It's not a term of talking about, and here it, is in, um, here it is in Colossians. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's an interesting term. Anybody else been resurrected to glory before Jesus? No. So he becomes now the, fir- the first place among all of humanity to come to the place of being both human and divine at the same time. He takes the preeminence among humanity and in so doing releases humanity from slavery under the divine sons over over humanity. Did you catch that? We were enslaved under the the sons of God, under, um, uh, if you will, the devil and the principalities, the powers. We were enslaved under them. Jesus... By resurrecting, takes and as a human being, now takes 
humanity outside of that slavery, free from it, shackles fall off and places humanity above that which was, which was over him. That in everything he might be preeminent. So let's, let's go back to Hebrews. It says this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he says the first, he brings the firstborn into the world, he says what? Let all God's angels worship him. Well, who, who deserves worship? God. And who are they saying to worship? Jesus. And Showing that all of the divine beings will worship Jesus. Anybody? Well, no. You can ask me questions later. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? All right. So the created divine beings are to worship Jesus. So no one is over him. He is firstborn, preeminent over all things. And even the divine beings are to worship Jesus. So let's jump down to chapter 2. Let's look at in Hebrews. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Because all of this, if you understand Jesus, what he did as a human uh, on behalf of humanity, you begin to understand what he does for us and who we are and how he sees us. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. This is, he's quoting from the, the writer of Hebrews, quoting from the Psalms right here. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor. And now the the, the apostles take this psalm and they see it as prophetic. They see it as Jesus, as as a reference to Jesus coming as a human, making him a little lower. This is what Paul says in Philippians. Have this mind in you. When he's talking about being humble, he's saying we should be humble towards one another. How humble should you be? The same kind of humble Jesus was. How humble was Jesus? He being in very form God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but left his place in glory, taking on the form of a slave, being found in the body of a human, coming in a, in a, in a human body, was obedient to God, even to the point of death, even to dying on a cross, has been raised from the dead, and now is given a name that is above every other name, that every uh, knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess on, in, in heaven, on earth, and below the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the kind of humble you should have. So he made him a little lower and then crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the psalmists are prophesying that this is going to happen. And the, the, the apostles realize this, and they're writing about it in their letters. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, he says this, at present, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. When you look around the world, do you see everything in the world subjected to Jesus yet? Anybody think there might be some things going on in the world that don't look like they're subjected to Jesus? Yeah, no, yes. There's definitely things happening in the world that aren't there yet. In fact, there are things that would deny him and defy him and say he's nothing and meaningless and no power. I will quote for you Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For that which a man sows, he shall also reap. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time you will reap 
your seed out of the ground before it grows. That's another way of putting it. He says this, but we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what God's grace is for Jesus? God's grace for for us is new life. God's grace for Jesus is suffering and death. But that suffering and death takes him to the place of preeminence. Interesting. So, what is the result of the work of Jesus when he came the first time? Let me, um, what, what, was, what is it Jesus did when he came the first time? How many would say salvation? Absolutely. That's what his name means. Jesus, Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. But there's more. Because Jesus left his immortal position, he was born a man. He left his place in glory, became a man. He gives his mortal followers the ability to leave their mortal position and be born out of fallen humanity and become divine members of the same family. Did you know that? That's what it means to be a child of God. We are literally, anybody heard being born again? I'm born, I was born of the flesh, now I am born of the spirit. What spirit? The divine spirit of God. We're going to look at some scriptures to see this. But that's what it means. I have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Um, That which is old has passed away. I am now new, been made new. All right. Someday we will meet the rest of the divine family. Those of the new Eden. Those are the divine counsel. He became as we are, so we might become as he is, the scriptures say. Jesus became like us so that we can become like him. All right, let's look at it in the Bible. We'll jump down to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it is fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. Did you catch that? I I want us to catch the full meaning of that. If you want to know your purpose in life, he just told you right there. Everything exists for Jesus. Everything exists for Jesus. For whom and by whom all things exist. Nothing exists that was created that wasn't created through him. And we all were created for him. In bringing many sons to what? Glory. What, let me tell you, what it means to be brought to glory means to be brought to glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Did you hear what he just said? Jesus is going to sing your praise in the midst of the congregation of all of the divine beings of heaven. You who think you're insignificant and don't mean anything and don't matter and are an accident and wonder why God even put you here. 
It just said, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's the kind of grace and love he has poured out on us. Behold what manner of love has the Father given unto us. This is what John's talking about. Behold, dwell on it, think on it. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The writer of Hebrews is making this up. The children God has given me. Some quote from Dr. Heiser here. Instead of being embarrassed before the Elohim of God's counsel at becoming human, becoming lower than they are, Jesus revels in it. So think about this for a minute. Okay, so you have divine beings in heaven. If we, if we kind of get this picture, this kind of helps us understand the fall to begin with, right? God, who is the greatest being who exists? It's not a hard question. Who? Yeah, God. God is the greatest being who exists, right? He eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no one great. He has no beginning. He has no end. There, there is uh, time, matter, and space cannot contain him, contain him. He is outside of all of those things. The greatest being who exists. Okay. Then he created an order in creation. The first thing he created were spiritual beings, divine sons of God, the divine council. Then we have different levels, right? You have seraphim. You have uh, cherubim. You have the sons of God. You, we see these different beings, and they have different orders in the heaven. Then he created earth. And all of the sons, it tells us, all of the sons of God rejoice. He's like, oh my goodness, that's a pretty cool thing you just did in creating a physical world, God. And then in, in the midst of that physical world, he created humans. When he created humans, he connected us to the spiritual world and to the physical at the same time. He, he created us. We're made of the dirt of the earth, right? He took the dirt of the earth and made Adam, and then we're made of the, of the spirit of God. He breathed life into Adam, and we became a living being. Right? Then he, then he takes and splits man in half and makes man and woman, and, and we become God's imagers on earth. And, and so if you look at the pecking order and our created order, we're, we're a lesser being than the divine beings in heaven. Right? I think this is exactly why Satan rebelled. This is why Lucifer rebels. What is the heart and nature of God? In one word, what is the heart and nature of God? God is love. 54 points. God is love, right? God is love. The heart and nature of God is love. He desires to give. He desires to express, pour out love on the object of his affection. That is his heart. He creates divine beings to reflect him. What are they supposed to do? If you're supposed to be like God, you're supposed to love. You're supposed to love. And when you love, you serve. You serve. One who loves, serves. Now, go back to the Garden of Eden, and you're there. Picture this divine being who comes down, who, you know, quite possibly God sent him there to serve. And he says, these are humans. They're less than me. I'm not serving them. They're going to serve me. Putting himself in the place of God. And then creating all of humanity to fall to death. Because he sees himself as a greater creature than humans. What does Jesus do? 
Jesus leaves that glory that he has over all of the divine beings and takes on this form here. Less than that. That should be embarrassing. Why would you take, why would you take something lesser that's beneath you? This is what the scripture is saying. This is beneath you. Why would you do that? Because in so doing, that thing that you thought was less than you, that you didn't want to serve, guess what? I'm going to become one like them. I'm going to raise up to glory. And I'm going to give those who come to me as human greater glory than you have. Now don't you wish you served them instead of rebelled against me? For the manifold wisdom of God is being known to the heavenly beings. Do you see this? This is no. Do we see this in other places? Yeah. How, do you not know that when Paul talks about he talks about this, he says, "Why do you go to court? Why do you go to a secular, worldly court?" He says, "Isn't there somebody among you who's wise enough to judge between the issues and problems that come up between you?" I mean, don't you know, and this is Paul talking, I mean, he's talking very matter-of-factly, like all of us should know this, like this should be very well understood in our places as, as, as the gospel. Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Don't you know that? You see, our picture of the gospel is so small and so limiting in who we are, and, and when we understand it, then we can be, it will, it will cause us to desire to seek to be like him. And in being like him, we will reveal him. We will pour him out around us. Instead of being embarrassed, Dr. Heiser says, before the Elohim of God's counsel at becoming human, becoming lower than they are, becoming lower than the divine counsel, Jesus revels in it. Why does he revel in becoming lower? It was all part of a grand strategy. Standing in the council, in the assembly, he presents us, behold, look at me and the children God has given me. He stands before this council, now glorified and above them, and presents before the council all that God has given him. Look at what God has given me. This is our destiny. This is our destiny. We are all together now and forever. That had been the plan from the beginning. Our entrance into God's divine glorified family is our destiny. Paul puts it beautifully in Romans. Here it is in in the book of Romans, Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I'm going to read more of what he's saying here. But I want us to understand who is saying this. Go, go to, on, your, on your own time. Go open the, the book of 2 Corinthians and read the last two chapters of 2 Corinthians. You've been shipwrecked three times. You've been beaten and left for dead. He's, he's gone through starvation. I mean, the, the trials and tribulations that Paul went through on this earth. And he says, he says elsewhere in Corinthians, he said they were but light momentary afflictions. What? compared with the glory that's to be revealed. You see, you've got to remember something else in Galatians. God gave him the opportunity to actually go to the third heaven and see the glory. And he tells us in his letter, he says, Mike, you don't know. You don't know. I have a friend 
Um, many of you may, may, may know or may have heard of him, uh, uh, Lee Short, Pastor Lee Short. He was the one that started Family Life Church. I, I moved here from Baltimore to help him start Family Life Church, and we merged with Calvary in 2004. And he's now uh, back full-time in the mission field. Um, in 1993, he died. He went, to, he went uh, and entered into paradise. His wife called him back. He came back. And um, after he was, he, he, they ended up moving here to Houston. And he had an opportunity. Somebody uh, gave him an opportunity to start going into Cuba, uh, communist Cuba, to um, share the gospel. And people asked him, well, weren't you afraid? He says, No. He said, the, the, I know what glory is. He says, the level of peace that I experienced, he says, I'm not afraid of anything in this world. Paul goes on, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is telling us, literally, the creation around us, the trees, the flowers, the animals, are eagerly longing for the time in which Jesus will come and we will be glorified and creation is restored to the glory it had in the Garden of Eden. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's saying, listen, he's saying creation itself, the cycle of death that we have in creation, it's longing, it's shaking, it's desiring for, uh, for us to, uh, for, for, to have the fulfillment of the glory that we will have in Christ when he returns. Because how many know it says there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It will be restored. It will be renewed to the glory that it had in Eden. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is not about going to heaven. Heaven is the waiting place for the glory that's to come afterwards, the resurrection. This is about a glorious, resurrected body reigning with Christ on earth in a renewed and restored creation. That's our hope. Number five, the Apostle Paul understood this message and encouraged all believers with this message. Here it is in verse 29. Because of Romans 8, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that He, Jesus, should be the firstborn among many brothers. That resurrection firstborn, that firstborn from the dead, is the pathway through which all of us will be resurrected and glorified like Jesus. When Jesus, okay, where is Jesus right now? That's not rhetorical. Somebody, this is uh, worth uh, 42 points. Where is Jesus right now? Where? But where? Yes, where? He is in heaven. Where? 
He's seated at the, yeah, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? He is seated. Now, in what form is he in heaven? How did he go up into heaven? Say it. Yes, bodily form. He went up in a glorified body. Don't you remember in Acts chapter 1? Go look it up. He walks to the top of the mountain with the apostles, and he's standing there physically, and all of a sudden, bodily, physically, goes up into the heavens. He is seated in the heavens in bodily form right now. Guess how he's going to return? Yes, it's had the, the two angels, they, they show up and they're talking to the apostles. They say, why are you looking up? Don't you know he's going to come back the same way you saw him go? He's going to be riding on the clouds. Jesus himself said that. He says, he says he's, when he was being tried before the council, they're, they're trying him. And uh, the, um, the high priest says to him, well, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? He says, yep, I am. And guess what? You will see me riding on the clouds coming from heaven. What? That's when he yells blasphemy. Because if it's not true, it is blasphemy. But if it is true, guess what? You just crucified the Lord of glory. (laughs) All right, let me keep going here. Here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, who's we all? In in Texas, we'd say, and all (laughs) y'all. We all is all y'all. And all y'all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Peter and John tell us the same thing. Let's look at what Peter and John have to say. Here's Peter, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through these precious and very great promises, you, that's all y'all, translate the text in here, all y'all may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You will have a glorified divine body from Christ. Here it is in John. See what kind of love. Behold. See. That's what that means. That sees. Behold. Grasp it. Get it in your mind. Try to wrap your brain around it. Try to understand. This is the, how much the Father loves you. This is the kind of love He's given to you. To you. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it didn't know him. Jesus stood on the world, the creator, and they crucified him. They didn't know who he was. Well, if they didn't know who he was, how are they going to know who we are? All right. Then he says this, beloved, we are God's children when? Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're already God's children. He's already put the deposit of the Spirit in us. It's already occurred. But what we will be has not yet appeared. There is something even greater that's going to appear. But, but we know that when He appears, Jesus, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. 
So that is a call then for us to say, Lord, how may I live for you now in the fullness of who you are, looking forward to the, the, the completion of this fullness that is to come? Why? Because the world needs to know this. It needs to know this. Why this matters. Coming down the home stretch, except I only have about 10 why this matters points. So, you know, when, uh, um, you know how much time you have left when a preacher says in conclusion? It's at least 30 more minutes. So that's why I'm not saying in conclusion. So. All right. Number one, we have turned that we have turned. We need to be like Jesus into a mere performance obligation. How good or bad we are, how well we perform our Christian duty. See, we, we've turned, you know, um, we've turned that we need to be like Jesus into a bracelet. What would Jesus do? We've turned it into that. We, we've made we've made being like Jesus being about how good or bad we are. Instead of making being like Jesus, beholding the love God has given to us and reflecting that love to others. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't worry about being good or bad. What Jesus did was just reflect the goodness of the Father. Wholeness. All right. This is a quote from Dr. Heiser. Rather than feel guilty about how much we aren't like Jesus and pledge in our hearts to do better. No one here has ever done that except me. We need, to, we need to let the blessing of what he did and will do rewire the way we think about being like him. Instead of, instead of going feeling guilty, oh, I'm just not good enough, I'm not enough like Jesus, you will never get, you, you can never, no, let me put this a different way. If, all, if you're focusing on what you're not, you'll never become who you are. You need to focus on who you are and who he's made you, and that's how it comes out. Does that make sense? All right, let's go to the next one. We can turn Christ, this is a quote, we can turn Christ-likeness into a task we must perform lest God be angry with us, and that's bad theology. Bad theology is I need to behave a certain way unless God punishes me. That turns grace into a duty. Okay? Or we can be grateful that one day we will be what God is thrilled to make us. He can't wait to make us into this glorious being that he's created us to be. And we can be thrilled that that is our destiny, what he has predestined us, and live in such a way that people enslaved, that the people around us who are enslaved to the dark powers will want to join God's family. Do you see the difference? Here's another one. The short version, then, is our choice is either an inward perspective or an outward perspective. We can either walk around just always worrying about inwardly, or we can live in such a way that we demonstrate outwardly who we have become. All right, here's another quote. The Christian life now is not about the fear that we will fail to keep happy the one who loves us while we are still enslaved to darkness. Do you all follow that? It's a, Christian life is not walking in fear. Am I making God happy? Am I making God happy? Am I, I, I'm, I literally watched a, a, a well-known, long-time uh, um, Christian musician say they have walked away from church simply because, not, I don't want to put, oversimplify this. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. But because they're living in fear and panic, and every time they saw a church, they would panic. That's not the Christian walk. 
That's not the Christian life. We should be coming running to him. Why? Because the only way we ever become free is him washing us, him cleansing us. We should be pouring all of that out to him. Lay it at his feet. Seventy times seven. Allowing his spirit to come forth and come out. All right, let me keep going. The Christian life is really about grasping two concepts. Here it is. You've got to grasp two things. Number one, our adoption into God's family, which means you're Jesus' brother or sister. You have been adopted into God's family. You are a brother or sister of Jesus. And number two, God loves you like he loves Jesus. God loves you like he loves Jesus. And so that tells us what? Our purpose in God's plan, why we're here, what we're to do is to restore his kingdom on earth. How many would like to see Jesus return? Peter says it very plainly. We can actually speed up that up. How do we speed that up? This is exactly why I prayed the, the very words I prayed when we started tonight. Um, it just hit me a while back. Daniel um, was exiled to Babylon, carried away from his family, no chance of ever going home, in a foreign land with pagan gods, lived faithfully for God there. And Jeremiah, he was reading Jeremiah's prophecy, and Jeremiah had prophesied, after you're exiled for 70 years, I will call you back to the land. Well, he reads that, and he goes, hmm, God made a promise. Here it is. God made a promise. And you know what he started to do? He started to pray. He prayed and fasted. God, you made a promise. Lord, keep this promise. Restore us in spite of us. Forgive us for what we have done even here. Restore us back. And he began to pray that, that, that God would keep his word and Israel would be restored back to the land. Well, what struck me about that is, my goodness, how many of us are praying, Jesus said something. He made a commandment. He said, he said go into all the world making disciples. To the, uh, um, he said it elsewhere, uh, um, uh, take the gospel to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. He said, he said um, um, uh, and Paul writes about this, that, that Jesus will return at the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations. Well, so I've begun praying, Lord, cause us, your church, to take that gospel. Cause us to do that. Keep your word. Keep your promise. Now, I don't know what God's going to do in answering that. But all I know is I didn't come up with that prayer. The Christian life. All right. Next one. What, why does this matter? We are and will be God's new divine counsel. Did you know that? God desires that we cooperate with him and work with him in carrying out his plan on earth. All right. Why else? He is our Father. We are His children, destined to live where He is forever. We are destined to live in the presence of God. The the, the few short moments we have on this earth compared to eternity. We are His co-workers, tasked with helping Him release those still owned by the Lord of the dead and held captive by unseen powers of darkness. You see, when you begin to understand this, you begin to discover what you were delivered from. 
We were all owned by the Lord of the dead. We were all held captive by unseen powers of darkness. When you begin to understand that's what you're delivered from, then you begin to understand we are now a co-worker with Christ in releasing others from that. And finally, last quote, we're done with this one. That is what the Bible is about, from Eden to Eden. Starts in the Garden of Eden. If you go to the last chapter of the Bible, it ends in the Garden of Eden. It's coming from Eden to Eden. That is your destiny, my destiny. Your life now is not about earning your place in God's family. That cannot be earned. It's a gift. That's how much he loves you. Your life now is showing appreciation for your adoption, enjoying it, and getting others to share it with you. Thanking God that you have been adopted into his family, sharing that with others, and getting others to share it with you. Enjoying it. Oh my goodness, enjoying it. All right. So, that's, um, that's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Is that kind of cool? Let's pray. Father, we bless you. I pray that, that all who uh, hear this, who heard this tonight, who do hear this, Lord, it wouldn't be just something that would be knowledge. That puffs us up. But that would be a truth that builds us up. I pray for each one to be truly edified in, in, in soul and in nature. Because that is exactly what you desire to do is to edify. May your word accomplish its, its full purpose. May your body, the body of believers, the church, accomplish your full will. Cause us, Lord, to fully embrace and to, and to fulfill your plan. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me know when we're turned off. Um, so we can have a couple of minutes to, to talk in here without it going out.